Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, coming to you from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas here in our nation's capital as it digests the boilerplate with a dose of bromide from President Biden's first State of the Union address. The speech given at the start of March, the latest a State of the Union has ever been delivered, really kicks off the final leg of the 117th Congress that will carry us through the summer and into the midterm elections. Of course, it all comes in the context of cataclysmic world events as war rages between Ukraine and Russia. And so I'm joined once again by my colleagues, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Thomas, to cover 2022 in 22 minutes. So let's go get them. Bruce, David, uh, welcome to thank you, uh, th- Thank you, Dean. I'm pleased to report that the state of this podcast is very strong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering who we're going to go get. David, his opener on Ukraine aside, I thought this was pretty tame, tepid stuff. It's kind of reminded me of what we hear in the Russell Rotunda for many uh, run-of-the-mill senator. The president's signature initiative, Build Back Better, didn't even get a mention. Inflation, infrastructure, prescription drugs, bottom up, not trickle down. Generic. What say you? Oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, I couldn't disagree with you stronger, my friend. I think that what I took away was this. That was a real State of the Union being given not by the head of the Democratic Party, but by the head of the free world who came in here and reminded everybody the role of uh, the United States in defending democracy, in uniting our uh, European allies in the face of a Russian threat. Uh, and, and, and how can you not stand behind that? I think it was I think it was important, but it wasn't just that. Then he turned to the priorities, both that he would like to see uh, take on that are more of the, the democratic priorities, but also once again, coming up with bipartisan issues that he thinks both parties should be able to agree on. So look, I think it was a great speech. I really enjoyed it. It sort of it, it was the way we've really forgotten what a state of the union is supposed to be like. And, and that's what it was. Uh, so I think he did a great job. You know, if we ever buy a pig, DTM hiring you as the makeup artist, uh, I knew you'd come out uh, in, in full throated defense. It, it's, and that's a little unfair. The speech, the speech was not uh, was not a swine. It's let's, let's start with a little bit, to be fair to the president. The gallery was half full. There were a lot fewer guests than normal. Um, if we're honest and not being partisan, Joe Biden's many positive things, but he's not a great orator, never has been, never will be. And, you know, turning 80 is not going to turn him into uh, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Barack Obama. Um, it, my take on it was it, it, there were kind of three parts. In part, there was a retreat. So on, uh, we're now funding the police, not defunding. Schools need to be reback, be open again. Inflation is not transitory. Uh, there's a problem on the border. We've got to, we've got to uh, be stronger about that. You know, that was all very different than a year ago, and where the administration has been. They've retreated, I think, politically shrewdly, where they were not winning. Second part, I would say, are recalibrations. It's not build back better. It's building back America or no, building better America. I don't know, whatever it is, because it wasn't the precise phrase. I lost a dollar bet in a uh, in a client meeting. Uh, but that ultimately, it's a recalibration. What are the pieces that we can move? Likewise, on climate, he's still committed to climate. Maybe the Russia angle will allow for some of that. And then on COVID, you know, it's this the president's work in the crowd. I mean, he used to be wearing a mask on the beach. 
Um, it, it's, uh, I think it's a recognition of where we are in reality. It was great to see a guy who is such a joyful politician work the room. You know, he loves working the room. Then there's a redefinition, I, you know, to give him a lot of credit. The Ukraine stuff was strong at the beginning. The yachts, jets, and luxury, luxury apartments of the oligarchs got the proper standing ovation. As an American, I was psyched to see both parties standing up, cheering, you know, it got weird and, and un, unfortunate towards the end. But in the Ukraine part, it was America united. And that made me feel pretty good. I, I'm sorry, but you, you kicked off what you were going to say there, uh, Bruce, by saying Joe Biden is not a great order. In we're not going to teach him something in his 80s. He's not going to be a great order like Donald Trump, I think, is, is what you just said there. That's actually Let, not what I said. That's uh, Let's go to the videotape, Dean. Uh, no, I think you said he's not like Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or Donald Trump. Let me tell you, like, I think it was refreshing to have a leader who is not standing up there as the head of his party, but as the head of our country and bringing people together. I went back and watched the last five minutes again because I thought it was so strong. And here's a guy who had ended with a handful of policies that he thinks the Republicans and Democrats should come to, together on. Things like tackling the opioid addiction, like ending cancer once and for all. Those are really good policy ideas. Those are the kinds of things that should come up in the State of the Union address. And then he reminded everybody that uh, we are in this together. And I thought it was a, a fantastic ending to the speech here. And I'm, I'm disappointed for you to say here, like, eh, it wasn't that good. It wasn't as good as President Trump. Well, so Oof. let me let me just say, DT, I will, I will re-listen to this when it comes out. If I said Trump, my, my note to myself was Reagan. Uh, if I said Trump, I agree with you. I think Trump was a buffoonish orator. Uh, I was supposed to say Ronald Reagan. So one of us is wrong and the other owes an apology. <laughs> <laughs> say what you will. There was some great stagecraft uh, in those Trump uh, State of the Unions. He was always really good, I will say, with the gallery guests. A really interesting set of, of gallery guests last night. The Ukrainian ambassador, Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of Intel, uh, you had a union steel worker, Joshua Davis, a young man suffering from diabetes, uh, Danielle Robinson, uh, who is a uh, who is a war widow. Her husband uh, died tragically from exposure in in Iraq. And then Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower. Bruce, what do we make of that? Uh, it's uh, if you're going to whistleblow, uh, hire the PR firms that Haugen has hired. <laughs> Uh, she's, uh, you know, she's has a more successful rollout than, than most book tours that I've ever seen. Dunking on big tech is been easy. Uh, and, uh, and it's bipartisan, you know, it reflects what we've talked about on this podcast before. And we know is in 2022 watch for the, uh, both parties, uh, to focus on the things that appeal to all overall voters. How do we bring inflation down? How do we get the economy roaring in a sustained way? Uh, how do we contain China and how do we better contain uh, social media platforms that, that are that are unpopular and untrusted? That sort of gallery guest reservation, you're right, is the uh, you know, is the is the mom and apple pie section uh, of any state of the union. And it just tells you how bipartisan and widespread this this dunk on big tech uh, theme is. Well, the president led off with it, and the Ukrainian ambassador was the first guest he introduced because a war uh, is now raging in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine has held out for over a week now, but the Russian onslaught is intensifying. The top line question here, uh, is this really a reset of the world order that's been heralded by some, or is the amazing courage of the Ukrainian people 
going to be crushed under Russian tanks and, and we're going to return to some form of the status quo in the West versus Russia and the impact there for China. I'm happy to start. You know, gosh, Dean, this is the first inning. You know, and and uh, there has been the upside surprise of uh, of stronger Ukrainian resistance and the breakout uh, extraordinary leadership of Zelensky. You know, who says uh, when when you look whether it's in Afghanistan or other Ukrainian leaders or Charles de Gaulle in World War II, the common thing is the leader who's facing a foe they can't defeat militarily bugs out and creates a government in exile. And when offered by the United States military, a chance to go do the very same. He says, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. Uh, that's that's up there with like the Alamo in terms of give you chills and and, and uh, rallying. Unfortunately, you know, it's you get a couple runs off the unhittable pitcher in the first inning or two is nice, but he's still going to bring the heat. And I it's I such a frivolous analogy. I feel bad, but I, I am I'm really worried about these next couple of weeks. I think uh, we're going to see the Russian military. Um, turning it up pretty hardcore, a lot more civilian casualties. Um, I think you're also, though, going to see the uh, the sanctions. You know, it's, it's something that the president uh, deserves credit for and gave him credit for, but deserves credit for is, you know, the free world was uh, looking like a bit of a wet paper bag and Putin was counting on that. Uh, and uh, from Germany saying they're going to reset how they do defense spending to all of these corporations saying they're going to stop doing business in Russia. I think uh, Putin has been surprised uh, by the, the rallying of the free world, kind of reminding the lessons we learned in the 40s, the 1940s, but maybe had forgotten at the end of the Cold War. And the other folks we're watching real carefully here are the Chinese. And if this is right. how the free world rallies to the defense, that's that means a lot to them, too. Yeah, but I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Bruce. I don't think we've seen a, a, the free world come together uh, in a way like this since the first Gulf War, when I think... Uh, uh, the original George Bush, uh, you know, brought together a powerful coalition to respond to uh, aggression against another state. And I, I think that's good. Boy, I'm, I, I agree with you. I'm very concerned about what the coming weeks will do, because I think, uh, uh, you know, he's a little bit uh, painted himself in the corner, feels trapped. And I think that's a dangerous place to be here. The, the inspiration, I think, that the Ukrainians are, are, are providing the rest of the world, it's really uh, something to see and something I haven't seen in a long time. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And, I, you know, Bruce, you referenced it, uh, getting Germany in particular uh, off the dime on defense spending. It is something uh, American presidents have harangued our NATO allies about going back decades. Uh, Donald Trump, perhaps most forcefully, just getting their GDP spending up over 2% and the sort of the laissez-faire attitude of the Europeans has been, well, the Americans will be there no matter what. And so, you know, both in terms of, of the defense outlays as spending and in terms of this sort of Germany in particular, this sort of pacifist view uh, they've had of themselves since World War II. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's changing for the better. We, we referenced it. China uh, is, is always part of the conversation here. Uh, what, the, what the Ukrainian war means in terms of China and Taiwan. Uh, but we have a larger competitiveness agenda here versus China just as, a, just as an economic adversary. Uh, two sort of tent poles here, and I'll, I'll just throw up a jump ball for what's going on on the Hill. We still need to fund the government, and we still have this... Uh, President Biden called it the bipartisan competitiveness bill. It's been known as USICA. It's been known as competes. It's been known as made in America. 
Uh, that seems headed towards a formal conference. I think those are the sort of the tentpole legislative efforts here of the next uh, month to six weeks. Uh, what do you guys see happening there? So I, the, the next appropriation uh, deadline, uh, Dean, is uh, March 11th here. And I, I, I think we're going to hit that deadline or get pretty darn close to it here. I think that uh, hopefully we are done with more uh, continuing resolutions here and this omnibus bill can get done. And I think because of the situation in the Ukraine, it does uh, give a little bit more impetus to having to get that done, giving the Defense Department what they need to get it done and getting the humanitarian relief over there. So I think that you know there may be a hiccup here and there, but look, we're about... Uh, less than two weeks away from that deadline, I think they can get it done. I think they will. If they can get over that hurdle, then I do think we're going to sort of re-engage on, um, uh, yeah, this bill needs a rebranding because there's so many names now I can't keep them straight. Uh, we'll just call it the China bill. I think that can get done. Um, I, I, I think there's um, impetus to get it done here. Uh, and you know, the president gave a pretty loud cheer for it last night. We just need to get that process going. Now, the House and Senate have been out for a couple of weeks here. Um, now that the leadership's back in town, I think they can focus on what the process is going to be to get that over the finish line. Um, the bills are very different here, but uh, even the Speaker herself acknowledged it's not going to be the House bill that passes here. It's going to be something much more to right. the Senate product. Um, so they got to go through a little sausage making to get uh, that piece done as well. So I think those two things are going to get done. The third thing, um, which which we may get to later, is obviously I, we, we've got to go through a Supreme Court uh, nomination as well. Uh, I think we're going to see hearings uh, announced by uh, Senator Dermott and the Judiciary Committee um, probably in the coming days here. And so that's another thing to keep an eye out for. Yeah, I'll agree with DT on the spending bill. You know, they're going through the usual dance where the Democrats have suggested that the defense spending extra as a result of Ukraine ought to come out from the existing number on defense, but the extra for civilian support shouldn't come out from the ex, uh, existing. They'll, they'll, they'll negotiate that through and, and they'll move that forward. I agree. Um, interesting discussion among our team on uh, whether this helps or hurts America competes. You're hearing the messaging from some house Republicans that the bill should be called America concedes because it's uh, it, it caves. It's not tough enough. It's not strong enough vis-a-vis -vis China. My own, presumption is I actually think because I fear Ukraine's going to get a lot worse. I think that's going to give the energy that we need to get the darn thing over the line. Certainly Senate Republicans and Dean, you're closer to Senator Young and to all of the key players. They want to get this done. They're going to be willing to make some kind of deals. I don't see this ultimately getting weaker vis-a-vis -vis China. I just see them fundamentally shedding all of the stuff that isn't really about competing with China. That's sort of a, a new vehicle for BBB to ride going forward. And last on the Supreme Court nominee, my hope here is that it's basically a political nothing burger. And I don't mean to dismiss the historic significance of the nominee, but from all one can tell, she's smart, she's qualified, she's good. She's just was vetted and approved less than a year ago for the appeals court. Um, I'm I presume she will uh, play it perfectly. Uh, and I don't think the Republic, I pray the Republicans aren't going to pick a fight with a qualified, capable, smart nominee who was recently confirmed. I think they're going to, uh, you know, you'll get maybe fewer than the 10 I had hoped votes, but you'll get a couple of Republican votes. Uh, you know, we uh, those who would object to the fact that it feels like they started with identity and then found an individual. So did Ronald Reagan. So did George H.W. Bush. Um, it's, uh, it's again, a smart, a seemingly smart, qualified nominee. Let's do the process. Let's let her answer the questions. Let's do what you're supposed to do in terms of advice and consent. Uh, but I suspect politically, that's not going to be a flashpoint. Yeah, I would just say real quick on the China bill, uh, we're in a sort of an informal process of, you know, what's going to stay in, what's going to go out. 
uh, between the House and Senate bills, uh, that sort of informal negotiation process. And then this continues to sound like it's going to be headed towards a formal conference that that's a that's a formal uh, formal process to reconcile a bill uh, competing bills between the House and the Senate. Uh, we haven't done that in quite some time, so we'll see. On Judge Jackson, look, this is either, uh, it's sort of binary here, right? This is either going to go through the normal process. I'm sure there will be fireworks in, in Senate Judiciary Committees. There always are for Supreme Court nominees, but the Democrats have the votes. They have the procedure. Republicans have a nuclear option. They could deny a quorum in the Judiciary Committee. It does not seem like it does not seem like that is headed uh, towards the nuclear option where Republicans would deny a quorum in the Judiciary Committee and make it awfully difficult for Democrats to discharge the nomination to the floor. Uh, that would require um, everyone from Senator Grassley on through the more incendiary members of the, of the committee to not show up for the hearing. Well, I hope it doesn't end up like that, uh, Dean. Look, as, as long as uh, Senator Cruz and Senator Kennedy and Senator Hawley are on the Judiciary Committee, uh, we're going to have, uh, I fear, unnecessary fireworks and theatrics um, that go beyond just the normal questioning of a justice. We'll see. I hope it goes through easily. Uh, this, you know, this should be a, um, a slam dunk uh, nominee that uh, gets bipartisan support. Hey, Ted Deutsch, the 12-year Florida congressman, announced his retirement this week. He is the 31st House Democrat to retire. It is looking uh, more and more difficult for Democrats to hold on to a pretty slim majority there in the House. Republicans continue continue to lead uh, the generic ballot. When you ask people if they're going to vote for Republican or Democrat for Congress, Republicans almost never uh, lead the generic ballot. The real clear politics average has got them up by about four points right now. This is uh, this is looking awfully tough, David. You got to. You got you got to spin there with a little ray of hope. I was wondering if you're going to bring that up. <laughs> Look, here is uh, here's what I'll say here. Uh, yes, is it is midterms always tough for uh, for a president uh, in their uh, first term? You bet. Are they tough for Democratic presidents even more? You bet. But here is what I'll say. Uh, number one, in 2016, who thought Donald Trump was going to win as president? Uh, up until the day before, nobody. In 2020. Who thought that we were going to uh, not win, not one, but two seats in the state of Georgia? Nobody thought that was going to happen. Either. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? <laughs> I'm feeling uh, everything I've just said is factually correct, Bruce Melvin, and you know it. Uh, we live in unprecedented times here. And here is what I'm encouraged. And this was the reset, I think, that we got uh, last night. Reset is not the right word. A uh, refocus on, on what is important here. Uh, uh, we are uh, still early in the year. It is first week in March here. This uh, election is in the first week in November here. Uh, the only thing I think that Americans like more than uh, sort of knocking down somebody who's up is watching them rise up again. And so I think, as I predicted last year, Joe Biden is about to take off as things are uh, heating up here. Uh, it is springtime. Pandemic seems to be a little bit more manageable place here. And, uh, you know, in the last two minutes of the speech, I would encourage everybody to go back and look at that last night here. I think it reminded people uh, on what is important about being an American and how we can get things done together. To me, I think that is a great message to take into the midterms here. 
I'd like to focus on what's going on in the Republican Party here, where uh, uh, you know we seem to have fights in both the Senate and House uh, breaking out in the, the caucuses here that are unbelievable. Rick Scott got publicly taken to task by Senator McConnell. Why did that happen? Because he said he presented a plan of what he wanted to do. Let me remind you, Mitch McConnell was asked earlier uh, last year, what will you do if you, if you take uh, our majority leader in the Senate again? And he said, I'll tell you after I'm majority leader. He doesn't have a plan. That fit pretty well with, with a caucus and with a party that had no platform in 2020. There was no platform. Bruce Melman, you are a man of ideas. You like ideas. You are a smart person. Your party had, didn't have a platform. Uh, that, to me, shows you what's going on there. Then we go over the House side, where it is like a rogues gallery of nuts, where Mitch, uh, uh, I should say Mitt Romney is totally right. They're all filled with morons. I mean, the fact last night that you, I mean, I don't know where to start. Oh, Bruce. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Do we start with Lauren Boebert? Do we start with Gosar? You know, there's a lot of people to point to where that is awful. So you know what? I'll stick with my party. I think we're going to hold it. I'm loving the DT energy, given how late everybody stayed up last night. Well, so first, DT, start with the, you point out, you started with history and you're right, but there was Newt versus Bob Michael internal GOP strife in 19, uh, heading to the 1994 midterms when we kicked you guys out of the House and the Senate in 2010. There was the Tea Party uh, uprising, and yet that was the biggest shellacking in the House in forever. Um, the Dems have pointed out how horrible gerrymandering is, yet one of the bright spots for the Democrats in 2022 is that you out gerrymandered Republicans around the country and Democrats have decried dark money. And yet, as the New York Times reports, the Democrats are now the party of dark money relative to the Republicans uh, with a lead and a lead that looks like it's there. You guys are doing everything that you can do, but the margin's too small. The nature of uh, the first, as you point out, the first midterm always goes against the president. And I frankly think it's even bigger than any. It's a mistake to look at a specific president and, you know, say, oh, he said Iranians, not Ukrainians. That's not at the end of the day. It's that big, broad macro theme that we're in a disruptive era and people don't feel protected by the parties, the policies and the institutions. So they're voting for change and they're voting for populists. We've seen nine of the last 11 elections as change elections where the House, the Senate or the White House changed hands. It's about to be 10 out of 12. Subscribe to us on iHeart, iTunes or Spotify. Thank you for listening. And Bruce Melman, David Thomas, thank you for joining me on 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Thanks, Dean. <laughs> 